The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, everything there is, and as his crowning touch, he made man in his own image, after his own likeness. And yet, ever since the fall of man, when sin entered the world, man has been attempting to remake God in our image, after our likeness, according to our personal tastes and preferences for our purposes, to reinvent him. Uh, if you trace the history of religion, uh, in every culture, at every turn, this is what you will find. And sadly, neither ancient Israel nor the church today is immune from that temptation. And so as we come to the final section of the book of Judges, we find uh, what we find in these closing chapters is the religious corruption of Israel in chapter 17 and 18, and then the moral corruption of Israel in chapters 19 to 21. So in a book that has walked us through one of the darkest points in ancient Israel's story, just when you think there's no way it can get worse, right? Samson has to be the bottom of the barrel, right? Instead, we enter a section where now the judges completely disappear. Those flawed heroes whose job was to establish justice and deliver God's people, they're off the page. And what's left is a deep dive into the moral and religious decay of the people themselves. A people, we are told, clear back in chapter 2, who did not know the Lord or the work He had done for Israel. And when you try to practice religion without really knowing God or His saving work, you will invariably find yourself making it up as you go. And that's what we've got. That's where our story begins in verses 1 to 6. It shows us that worship, divorced from revelation and obedience, is really just reinventing God. Worship divorced from revelation and obedience is really just reinventing God. Uh, you could tell from the very first verse that this section, there's something new here. It doesn't begin the way we would expect. You, know, you expect in the book of Judges to read... Once again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord handed them over to their enemies, and they cried out for help, and the Lord raised up a judge. We don't have any of that here. Instead of that, verse 1 begins, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, not to be confused with Micah the prophet later in the Old Testament. But it just, the story all of a sudden zooms in from this national scale down to this single household. And it kind of picks up right in the middle of an ongoing story. Verse 2, he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. It's kind of like one of those movies that starts in the middle of a scene without any explanation and then you expect a flashback at some point three weeks earlier and so on and so forth. But we don't have that here. We just were dropped right into the middle of a family conflict. Uh, a son has stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. Uh, incidentally, the same price that uh, Delilah was paid to betray Samson. The mother has cursed whoever took it. The son <laughs> heard that curse and is now afraid of it, and so he gives it back. And, and so you wonder, what's mom going to do? Uh, this is no small sum of money. 
I mean, you imagine waking up one morning and finding out that tens of thousands of dollars are missing from your bank account. Uh, what's she going to do with that? You would expect some disappointment, right? Some level of anger or outrage even, at certainly some sort of discipline. Uh, but this is where the story gets weird and then keeps getting weirder. Rather than being upset, she praises her son for handing it back and then turns the curse that she had uttered into a blessing, which on the one hand is kind of a remarkable expression of compassion. On the other hand, it feels so dysfunctional, like just completely ignoring this major thing that happened. Uh, but then in verse 3, she decides to dedicate the silver that was returned to the Lord, to Yahweh, Israel's God. That's nice, right? In order to make a carved image and a metal image. That's not nice. That's not right. That's not how this is supposed to work. You know, she's attempting, she, she's talking about worshiping the Lord, Israel's God, but she's attempting to do it in a way that is expressly forbidden by God in His covenant with Israel. It's the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And they don't stop there. Uh, even though she says she's dedicating the silver to the Lord, she only gives 200 pieces of it. She keeps most of it for herself. Uh, and when the silver image of Yahweh is done... Her son Micah takes it and he adds it to his shrine, or more literally, his house of gods. So apparently this whole making a graven image thing is not even new for this family. They've already got a small collection and now Yahweh gets to join it. And then to complete the whole religious experience, he makes an ephod, which is the, the garment that the priest was to wear in the tabernacle or the temple uh, as they served. Then he makes some more idols or household gods to keep Yahweh company. And then he ordains his son as a priest. Perfect, right? The complete do-it-yourself religious experience right in his own living room, his little mini temple, despite the fact that Ephraim is not very far from Shiloh where the tabernacle, the real tabernacle, was during this time of the judges. So you read this story, and it is, it's hard to know whether to laugh or cry, right? I mean, you're tempted to be a little encouraged. At least they're trying to worship Yahweh this time instead of the gods of the foreign nations around them, which is what we've seen throughout the book. But are they really worshiping Yahweh if they're not doing it according to His Word? Are they really worshiping Yahweh if they're not doing it according to His Word? I mean, they've got so many of the externals, right? The external trappings. A lot of this sounds very familiar, like you're reading it out of Exodus or Leviticus, and yet it's all off. It's like, you know, they're, they're missing the key ingredient of true knowledge of God. It, it, it's like uh, trying to put together a piece of Ikea furniture without the instructions, like you've seen what it's supposed to look like and so you start kind of just making it up as you go and the end product might resemble a chair, but you've got all sorts of leftover parts you're not sure what they were for. I mean, that's, that's the, this is the do-it-yourself religious experience. Breaking the second commandment 
in effort to worship God, creating your own personal priesthood for your own personal shrine in your living room. But the sobering truth is that worship, divorced from revelation and obedience, is really just reinventing God. That's what it is. That's why the second commandment exists, to keep us from reinventing God. Uh, As one author explains, any graven image or depiction, so statue, picture, whatever, any graven image or depiction of God would automatically reveal part of God's nature, but conceal another part. And, And so worshiping God with images... It reveals an inward spirit that does not want to submit to God as he is, but wants to pick and choose attributes in order to create a God that is palatable to us, a God made in our own image. And while in the Western world here, we are less inclined to break out the Sculpey clay and create an actual, you know, graven image or something like that, we are experts at reinventing God. I mean, you think about um, how often you hear someone say, well, I I don't like, uh, I don't believe in a God like that. I like to think of God as such and such. You know, it's such a common expression. It's reinventing God. But God is not whoever we want Him to be. He is who He is and has revealed Himself to us in His Word, and ultimately in His Son, Jesus Christ. As Tim Keller explains, fundamentally, the faith of God's people is a revealed faith. God shows us who He is. He reveals Himself in His Word. We do not discover Him through our reason or experience In short, God says, worship me as I am, not as you want me to be, and worship me as my heart directs, not as your heart suggests. Worship divorced from revelation and obedience is really just reinventing God. And so you look at that and you're like, how in the world did Micah and his mom get so far off? Like, where does this come from? Well, the narrator tells us in verse 6, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, it's interesting that the narrator connects Israel's compromised worship with the absence of a king, something that the book of Judges has been hinting at all along, and and we'll come back to that later. But the second phrase there is what I want to focus on for a moment. And it really captures what's happening here. The fact that everyone is doing whatever is right in their own eyes. So earlier in the book, we were told that, that Israel was doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. That was one of those repeated phrases we saw. They're still doing that. The only difference now is that the Lord isn't even the standard against which it's measured. I am. You are. Whatever we see in our own eyes, that becomes what is right. Each person is now creating their own standard for right and wrong, good and evil. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to recognize how it is no different today, right? It is no different today. In fact, what 
what Judges criticizes of everyone doing the right in their own eyes is celebrated and lauded today as the ideal, the standard that we all should aspire to. Philosophers even have a term for it. They call it expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, as Trevin Wax explains, this is the belief that the purpose of life is to find one's deepest self and then express that to the world. Forging that identity in ways that counter whatever family, friends, political affiliations, previous generations, or religious authorities might say. So it's basically the plot line of every Disney movie, right? Figure out who you are, forge your identity, and find yourself in opposition to the naysayers. Or you think of all of the slogans that drive pop culture today, you know, you do you, follow your heart, find yourself, be true to yourself. And, you know, we don't often think about what we're saying with those things, but you take that idea that, that you are the standard for who you, your real identity is, that you get to create that in your own eyes. Apply that to religion then, and as Wax explains, if according to this concept of expressive individualism, if the first and greatest commandment is to be yourself, then the unforgivable sin is to be false or to wilt before some external benchmark that others, like the church, might foist upon you. Sin is the failure to be true to yourself. Thus, the solution is not repentance, it's reassertion. It's to reestablish your claim to ultimate sovereignty over your life and then to courageously stand against the outside forces that would call you to any, any sort of conformity. I mean, this, this is the air we breathe today. This is the air we breathe. This is our culture. And, but understand this. Hear this. That the only way to pull that off, expressive individualism, be true to yourself, all those kinds, the only way to pull that off is first, if you ignore God's revelation, if you reject or disregard his commands, and then remake him into your own image. That's the only, you cannot be sovereign over your self-identity and worship God at the same time. It is impossible. And so religion is no longer about knowing God and honoring God and serving God. Instead, it's about using God to accomplish my own purposes, to find my own self, to pursue my own happiness, to become whatever I deem to be my true self. That's why idolatry is such a drug. It's ultimately about control. And, and, and that's actually what we see as the story moves forward in verses 7 to 13, that, that reinventing God is really about controlling God. That's what's going on here. So if you look at verse 7, we meet another character, uh, a Levite, who has been living in Bethlehem in Judah. The Levites, you might remember, were the tribe from which God chose the priests 
for ancient Israel. Uh, unlike the other tribes, they did not have their own land of inheritance. Instead, they had cities that they lived in uh, among other tribes and territories. And, and so here's a Levite uh, living in Bethlehem, but now he's looking for a new home. And his journey happens to take him to the house of Micah in the hill country of Ephraim. But when Micah discovers that his guest is a Levite, look at what he says to him in verse 10. Stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothing and your living. Now, if you think about it, he's already got a priest in his house, right? He ordained one of his sons in verse 5 or 6 or something like that. So why does he need a new one? Well, it's kind of like those texts you get from your mobile service provider every now and then that you're qualified for an upgrade to a new iPhone X, Y, or Z or whatever number we're on now. Mike is getting an upgrade. Here's a, here's a chance. I mean, after all, the covenant said the Levites were supposed to be the priests. And so now if I get a Levite as a priest, this little do-it-yourself shrine is going to be even more legitimate. And, and you look at why that matters to him in verse 13. Then Micah said, Now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. I'm doing it right now. And God has no choice but to bless me. Reinventing God is really about controlling God. That's what we're trying to do. That's what makes idolatry so attractive. You know, if we can reduce God to something manageable, something accessible, something maybe even dependent on us, then we have leverage on him. I know where he is. I take care of his shrine. I make all the right sacrifices. Now God owes me. It's not worship. It's control. It's manipulation. And again, this is... This is not so far from us today as we would like to think. Anytime we think that we can control a divine, a, a guarantee a certain divine outcome based on our behavior or, or our actions, you know, if I just read the Bible or go to church or if I get baptized or take communion or love my neighbor or support some cause, then God has to bless me. Anytime we do that, we reveal that we're not really worshiping God. We're using Him. We're using Him. More than that, we're reducing Him to just some other capricious pagan God who has to be appeased and taken care of. It's an insult to the Lord because God is not whoever we want Him to be. He is who He is. And we have access to God, not by reducing him or reinventing him, but by his grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. We have access to God. Praise be to God. But it's not because we take control of him. It's because Jesus has given everything to make us his own. The point, the goal of faith is not to control God, but to surrender to him that his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. The sad part of this section is that Micah, 
He genuinely thinks that God is going to bless his idolatry and his disobedience. Like that's what idolatry does, right? It just, it messes you up. That's what happens when we remake God in our own image. We think that we're obeying him and even honoring him when in fact we are disregarding him, rejecting him, even spitting in his face. But it gets worse because not only does idolatry offend God, it therefore also disappoints us. It disappoints us. And that's what we see in the last section of our story in chapter 18, which we didn't read beforehand, but I encourage you to read it on your own, that reinventing God will leave you as empty as the false gods that you make. Reinventing God will leave you as empty as the false gods that you make. So chapter 18, the camera kind of zooms out a little bit from a single household in Ephraim. Now we're looking at the whole tribe of Dan. And uh, though, as we're going to see, Micah and the gods that he made still are a central part of this story. But we're reminded at the beginning of chapter 18 that kind of like the Levite earlier, the tribe of Dan is looking for a place to call home. Even though they received an inheritance in the book of Joshua in chapter 19, uh, they were unable to take it. Uh, You might remember back in Judges 1, verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. And so instead of obeying God and taking the land that God actually gave them, they decide to go look for an easier target, something that is, quote, quiet and unsuspecting, three times we're told in the chapter, uh, with no one to deliver them. So like Israel of old, they, they send out a scouting party to spy out this city that they think is going to be an easy target. And on that journey, they happen to come to the house of Micah in the hill country of Ephraim. And when they get there, they apparently recognize the priest they, somehow and kind of ask him, what are you doing here? And he's kind of like, you will never believe it. I'm a priest now. Uh, I've got this gig. And so they decide, well, if he's a priest, let's ask him what God thinks of our little journey. And what's the Levi do? He tells them what they want to hear, that God will be with them, that it will be under the eye of the Lord. And so instead of obeying God and taking that land, they set their eyes on this easier target, they rally, the, the spies return, they rally the troops, and they, they begin their journey north to the city of Laish, a city that's a hundred miles away from what was supposed to be their territory, and even outside the land that God had promised them, uh, outside the land he'd promised Israel. But as the, the troops kind of pass through Ephraim on their way north to Laish, they stop again at the house of Micah in the hill country of Ephraim. And verse 14 reads, Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Did you know that in these houses there is an ephod and household gods, a carved image and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they knew what to do. They decide, we're going to take all that stuff. And why would they want that? Well, because... If we have possession of the God, we have control of the God. He has to bless us. And so we're going to take take all this stuff with us and force God's hand 
of blessing. And so that's what they do. They show up with 600 men. They take the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image. And when the priest comes out and says, you know, what are you doing? They make him an offer he can't refuse. Verse 19. Keep quiet, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us. And be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the Levite thinks about that for about 30 seconds and decides, I'm in. This is good. We're told in verse 20, his heart was glad. And so just as Micah got an upgrade on his priest, now the priest gets an upgrade on his gig. He gets a lot better job, more prestigious, and so on, which only reveals that he's just as corrupt and selfish as everybody else in the story, right? I mean, he, he's willing to serve as a priest to whoever will pay him. He's going to tell them whatever they want to hear, and as soon as he finds a better gig, he's on to the next thing, right? Well, eventually Micah finds out what's going on, and his neighbors and he kind of rally and they catch up to the Danites who've taken his gods and moved on. And the Danites are rather annoyed that this guy would come and stop them and ask what they're doing. But look at what Micah says to them in verse 24. He says, you take the gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? What have I left? Why is he so upset? Because... All of a sudden, he's empty. He's empty. Everything that Micah had invested in and built in this whole religious enterprise, this do-it-yourself temple, everything he thought he could use to get God to bless him, it's all let him down. It's all been taken away, and he stands there with nothing left. How sad is that? Reinventing God will leave you as empty as the gods, the false gods that you make. And, and that's the irony here. Micah thinks that he has nothing left. What he doesn't realize is that he had nothing to begin with in those idols. There's nothing there. They're false gods. In fact, one of the words the Old Testament uses for idol is the word nothing in Isaiah 66. That's how empty and foolish this is, or as Psalm 115 describes. They have mouths, these idols, but they do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. Feet, but they don't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. Think about that, the emptiness. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Reinventing God will leave you as empty as the false gods you make. And that's a lesson that Dan would eventually learn as well. Uh, after they conquer Laish and they rename it uh, Dan, they set up Micah's idol and, and kind of open up his shrine in their own hometown as an alternate place of worship from Shiloh, which is where the real tabernacle was at this time. And the Levite and his descendants become priests for this tribe for generations to come. But there are two shocking revelations in verse 30. First, 
we find out the name of the Levite. Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. We're talking about someone in Moses' own family, just a few generations away. That's how quickly and how corrupt this religious decay has seeped into ancient Israel. That Moses' grandson, or however many generations, genealogies sometimes skip generations to summarize, but, but however many generations, Moses' grandson is selling himself out to be priest for whoever will pay him the most. That's, that's how corrupt. The second thing we see in verse 30 is that the legacy of idolatry that began with Micah will ultimately lead to Dan's downfall as well. Micah's idol is eventually, eventually replaced with a golden calf when Jeroboam uh, becomes king in, second, in 1 Kings 12, the uh, the tribes, the kingdom under David and, uh, and Solomon splits and the northern kingdom is ruled by Jeroboam and he decides to set up uh, an alternate shrine in the north in the city of Dan and replaces that image with a golden calf, which of all of the idols you were going to pick. I mean, that one had to be obviously stupid, right? But, but that's what he does. And verse 30 tells us that Jonathan's descendants, as they continue to serve this sham temple, they do so until the day of the captivity of the land, which is a reference most likely to when the nation of Assyria came in and wiped out the northern kingdom explicitly because God was judging their idolatry. That's what 2 Kings 17 tells us. Their idolatry let them down. And perhaps the, the saddest note about Dan is that when you get to Revelation 7 and the 12 tribes of Israel are listed as standing before God, there's a tribe missing. It's Dan. They're not there. I mean, think about that. Reinventing God will leave you as empty as the false gods that you make. Tim Keller summarizes it so well. He says, in the end, self-made religion will disappoint. Whatever we make into our God, money, power, relationships, or even a reduced man-made version of the biblical God, it will not deliver. And so it's worth asking ourselves, when you think about Dan, uh, Micah's reaction when his gods are taken away, and he cries out, what do I have left? It's worth asking ourselves, what is the thing about which, if it were taken away from us, would we say, you took my God, what else do I have? Where can I go in life now? I have nothing left. What, who or what is the thing that we look to for ultimate meaning and purpose and blessing? And we need to ask ourselves that question. It's easy to look at the world and say, well, that's their false God, or even to look at somebody across the room and say, I know that false God. We need to ask ourselves that question. Where have we allowed ourselves to reinvent God in our own image so that we can follow our own hearts and do whatever's right in our own eyes? Because if we're not worshiping and building our lives around God as he really is, we are not honoring God and we will 
be let down in a big way. And so it's also, therefore, good to ask ourselves a second question. Not only where am I doing this, but to the extent that I'm doing this, what hope is there? Like to the extent that I am trying to kind of control God and, and uh, reduce him or manipulate him, to the extent that I am simply using him to follow my own heart or do whatever's right in my own eyes, well, what then will it take to truly worship God as he is? What's the solution? Well, come back with me to chapter 17, verse 6. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. And look at 18.1. In those days there was no king in Israel. And we're going to see that phrase two more times before the end of the book. So part of what Judges is doing is suggesting to us that at the heart of our faithfulness to God is the redemptive rule of a certain kind of king. Not just any king. And we had Abimelech in chapter 9 crowned king. That was a disaster, right? So it's not just any king, but a king who will truly establish justice. A king who will walk in righteousness according to God's law. A king... Boy, it would be nice if this king wasn't subject to death because every time a judge dies in this book, Israel spirals into further sin. A king who ever lives to plead for us. And of course, you know, after judges, uh, eventually you get to the book of Samuel and Israel gets a king, right? Uh, it's great. Um, and we meet lots of kings in the Old Testament, but none of them accomplish all that God envisions and none of them supply all that God's people need. And so the Old Testament at the end of the day leaves you wanting because it's not done with the story. It sets the expectation and directs the desire, but the fulfillment doesn't come until you meet the true king, Jesus. The king that we actually need, the king through whom worship is actually possible. Worship that truly submits and surrenders and satisfies is only possible through King Jesus. In Jesus, we find out who God really is. I mean, there's no more reinventing God. There's no refashioning Him after my image or according to my likeness. Rather, Colossians 1, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You don't need to make images. Jesus is the image. He's the one who fully reveals God to us. The firstborn of all creation. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Every image we try and make only captures a tiny part of God and it conceals so much of him. But in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Nothing is concealed. And through him... To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If you want to know who God is and what true worship looks like, listen to his word and look at his son. Listen to his word and look at his son. 
God is not whoever we want him to be or who, whoever we like to think of him as. He is who he is. And he has revealed himself to us in his word and ultimately in his son, Jesus Christ. And we are not whoever we want to be. We are who God, our maker and savior, says we are. Made in his image with intrinsic value and dignity. Redeemed by his grace through faith in his son. Set apart from this world to serve God, not by doing what is right in our own eyes, but by submitting to his holy word, surrendering to his gracious will, and finding in him a satisfaction that none of our man-made cheap imitations could ever compare with. May God so move in our hearts that we will never be satisfied with anything less than Jesus. And may we drink deeply of his word and look so intently at his son that God would be honored among us with a worship that treats him as he truly is. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we confess that you are so better than anything we could come up with. Lord, we confess that, that it, had you asked us to invent you, it would have been a nightmare. It would have been a selfish uh, pandering. And Lord, thank you that you are who you are, not who we say you are. You are holy, you are righteous, you are just and merciful, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That you are who you have revealed yourself to be. And thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us through Jesus, your Son. That because of him, we can actually worship you. We have access to God the Father through our union with Christ, his Son, in your presence by the Spirit. Lord, what an absolutely incredible gift that is. May we rejoice in who you, rule, in who you truly are. And would you keep us from trying to improve upon you or trying to make you less so that we can make ourselves more? Lord, satisfy us in Christ that you might receive the worship due your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.